Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. In the name of Allah, the gracious, the merciful. Assalamu alaikum. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Welcome to today's Drive Time Show with myself, Fahim, and Imran. How are you doing, Imran? Um, Alhamdulillah, all praise be- belong to Allah. How are you, Danish? Beautiful weather today? Yeah, great. It's, it's, it's beautiful weather today, right? Um, yeah. Good day for a great discussion today. We're today discussing two really important subjects. Um, could be potentially linked in, in, in some sort as well. Uh, the first, we're going to be discussing poverty. Um, and in the second hour, we will be discussing uh, university and whether it's worth it or not to actually go. I think that would be a fun one to delve into. Right. Um, so just don't forget to get in touch. You know, it's the Drive Time Show. Please tell us your views. You can reach us on 0208-687-7878. You can also tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. Um, we're also on Instagram too. So make sure that you answer our poll. So... Um, Today we're going to start off with poverty And the reason why we're discussing poverty today Is because um, it actually in, Today marks International Day for the Eradication of Poverty right. So that's, that's why we're going to discuss And you know, often some, when someone is living in poverty They experience that their dignity is being denied or disrespected mm-hmm. which, is, which is why the theme is quite um, relevant When it says that Dignity for all in practice. Absolutely, yes. So it's 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 a nice one, right? Yeah. And so today we're going to discuss why so many people are actually living in poverty, and whether it is solely an economic issue, or if there is something else which may be causing it. Islam takes care of problems like poverty by dignifying labor and teaching a believer to rely on Allah for his needs. Poverty and need are timeless conditions and the Holy Prophet peace and blessings of Allah be upon him gave clear teachings on begging and charity begging or asking for food and money without repayment was the means by which the poor survived at the time of the Prophet the Holy Prophet peace and blessings of Allah be upon him disapproved of begging and only allowed it under three circumstances if one was in severe poverty when one owed enormous debt or when one did not have the means to pay blood money. He did not allow begging by a rich person or by one who has strength and is sound in limb. And uh, he actually went on to say, um, he who begs from people when he has a sufficiency will come on the day of resurrection with his begging showing itself as scrapes, scratching and lacerations on his faith. So, uh, and, um, just to clarify, mm. uh, just allow me why Islam, um, like, uh, not allowed. In, why we, why in Islam we're not allowed to beg. Yeah. I just want to, you know, clarify that point. Please. So, if you look at the Holy Quran, you will find out that there are several verses um, of the Holy Quran which say, uh, "Look after needy and do charity." Mm-hmm. And now, when Islam doesn't. What Islam doesn't want from the people to become burden on the society and on, on economy, Islam wants from the people to become useful assets, 
assets of the society and to you know contribute in the society for the betterment of the people and now when islam discourages people to beg it discourages people who does not beg because they have some kind of excuse um uh, but it discourages people who are professional beggars and they are just burden on the economy so for example um in the um surah uh, the chapter 107 verse 3 um allah almighty says that uh, he allah almighty encourages muslim people to pay attention to poor beggar and in contrast in other verses uh, like chapter 45 verse 7 um allah almighty criticizes people who are lying for the sake of others mercy with a mode and gesture of a falsehood so the, the so the underlying uh, um rule uh, is that if you are safe and sound if you are i mean um if you can do work if if you if you have not excuse then uh, you should uh, like um should shouldn't be burden on the economy and um uh, islam wants people to become a better a person for society and mm-hmm. not to be burdened on the economy so yeah oh, no, that's great context thank yeah. you and um so you know starting off um we should figure out and kind of explain for our listeners right mm-hmm. what is poverty right and um i think when we think of poverty mm-hmm. we often think you know lack of money right right, right. isn't that the, isn't that the first thing that comes to your head yeah, you lack think, of money. like i don't know i picture someone with like uh, ragged clothes and things like that right, right um right. so however when you actually think about poverty it's much more than that Absolutely. and it's much more than just a lack of money and if we talked about poverty in the third world countries it would be very different to poverty in the uk right um so living in the uk mm-hmm. you know we're a uk sh- radio station we're going to discuss what what is poverty in the uk mm-hmm. and while lack of money is the defining feature of it um in addition to not being able to meet basic needs such as food or shelter poverty is also about not being able to participate in recreational activities right. you know not being able to send your children on a day trip or to a birthday party or not being able to pay for medications for illness mm-hmm. um children can grow up in poverty for a number of reasons and you know they're not limited to these reasons but um these are a number of these reasons things like income from employment wages wage levels may be low and there may be a lack of availability of suitable mm-hmm. jobs mm-hmm. um you know jobs which can accommodate suitable hours for parents and children and cost and availability of suitable childcare mm-hmm. right like a, a child a parent can't go to work if they can't afford the childcare right mm-hmm. and uh things like as we as we're going through at the moment costs of living parents may not be able to afford essential living costs such as housing food and fuel mm-hmm. um, now electricity gas um there are maybe unavoidable costs such as disability or costs associated with children such as the cost of a school day right. so um what does the the holy quran uh, say about this so the holy quran uh, says um in the in chapter 17 was uh, 32 slay not your children for fear of poverty and explaining this verse hazrat khalifatul masih the second the second caliph of ahmadiyya muslim community states that those miserly parents who do not provide proper education secular moral and religious food and clothing clothings to their children in fact 
contribute to their physical and uh, moral death. So, um, you know, uh, uh, Allah Almighty says in the Holy Quran, um, do not slay uh, children for the fear of poverty. It it um, really necessary um, for us, you know, to you know um, believe uh, to have uh, some kind of faith in uh, in our Creator that uh, um, we just not uh, um, deport our children just to fear uh, just to have a fear that how gonna feed them and how gonna uh, survive. And uh, o- obviously there's there are several interpretation of these verses as just mentioned by the second caliph of Ahmadi Muslim community. Yes, and I just want you to comment on the previous um, mm. um, thing that what is poverty as well. So, uh, just to sum up, if uh, correct me if I'm wrong, that there is two kind of poverty. One is that uh, it is um, like absolute poverty, right? When you mm. have uh, deprived of uh, basic necessities of life, for example, yep. clothes, uh, food, and um, yeah. shelter, something like that. And this, there is a second kind of poverty uh, when people are deprived of the minimum up amount of income needed in order to maintain the average standard of living in the society um, they live in. Yeah. So basically, um, just to sum up, if you are not uh, in the UK, if you don't have a PS5, then you're considered <laughs> poor. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I think that's debatable. But yeah, that's an example of it, right? right. It's things that you need and mm-hmm. uh, things that you'd want. And, you know, I think it's that, like, kind of... Um, the choice. Mm-hmm. I think that it's that it's um, going month to month, um, not ever being able to pay down your debt, right. or things like, um, you know, y- you may want something for your children. Like they were saying that you know, uh, just being able to clothe your children, send them to school. These are all expenses, and mm-hmm. um, at the end of the day, you know, as as we've seen with the UK at the moment, like you know. Poverty is 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 strife, um, and I think that it's it's an it's an ongoing issue, right, right in the right, UK. Absolutely. And um, a recent article actually from from the Guardian has found that um, black and minor minority ethnic people in the UK are more than twice as likely um, as white people to experience deep poverty. Wow. So I think that, let that sink in for a second. Like the, whenever I think of these, it's, it's always shocks me because it's like you know. Just because, like, the color of your skin has such an impact of mm. of the ways like things are in society, like the, the color of skin, right. your skin can really impact your your life. And, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, um, despite making up fifteen percent of the UK population, minority ethnic people account for twenty six percent of those in deep poverty. Oh. So, <laughs> not not even <laughs> the majority of yeah. people in the UK, but they still such a what well, that's over a quarter, isn't it, mm-hmm, of those in poverty? Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the main issues here is that job wise, many ethnic minority groups continue to see relatively pa- poor earning prospects. So the the earning potential is is lower, and. Um, for example, experiments have demonstrated this, you know, that all major ethnic minority groups in Britain experience discrimination at the in- initial stage of the job so- search process. You know, BAME uh, job applicants need to make almost twice as many applications in order to obtain a positive callback, you know, such as a job interview um, as white British pairs with identical CVs. So mm-hmm. let us think here for a second where it's like, okay, uh, just because they've seen uh, an ethnic or uh, black-sounding name, or like you know, they um, 
they make these assumptions and i know that there are companies out there that are trying to you know have unbiased um applications and and they are trying to and, you know whenever you see job applications they're always saying things like you know we don't discriminate we don't discriminate yeah. but it's like the thing is is that if a lot of um like a, a lot of a certain type of individual are in positions of power and mm-hmm. in positions of recruitment then you they're going to they're going to provide opportunities to people that are like them plainly because those are the people that they hang around with those are that you know they can you uh, it's uh nepotism is such a big thing as well right like so i think that opening it up and these unbiased like uh, um i recently saw that uh you know there's uh, programs that kind of uh remove your name remove your picture or re- remove any sort of thing that can indicate the type of person you are and still manage to um enable you to uh apply like in an unbiased way so i thought that's quite cool there are moves towards it right mm-hmm. i mean absolutely fame and the criteria should be that if you're eligible for that job or not it's not uh, uh this the criteria shouldn't shouldn't be you know uh what color your skin has or uh, what um, background you have the criteria the criteria should be that whether you are eligible for that job or not and that that's what yeah. the holy quran says that you know uh um that uh, you shouldn't be con- um uh, w- uh it is the verse in the holy quran that that wa antu adun al imanati ila ahliha that you know uh, you should um um give a person job who is really eligible for that yeah. and not consider that uh, he is from your background or he's from uh, he's from your uh, he's relative or something yeah, exactly. like that yeah no definitely and i think that um you know things like today international day of eradication of poverty are really important to to you know showcase the the um uh the the importance of something like right. this and like you said you know it should be fair it should be unbiased mm-hmm. and then people have equal opportunity to higher per earning and you know that 26% of um you know black and minority ethnic people being making up of the poverty might change and 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 that's that's what we can do but anyway um so why don't we discuss a bit more about the international day for eradication of poverty do you want to tell us a bit about the day well before before we do that why don't we go to our first guest um i think we have um janet nelson on the line um she worked for the development uh, ngos in zambia and tunisia and then for um unicef for many years she now works on a volunteer basis as the main representative of atd fourth world to the united nations in geneva switzerland so with that um short introduction uh, welcome to the drive time show janet thank you very much and thank you for having me we're going to kick off with um you know we just want to know a bit about yourself and you know what do you do and, and what what your mission is well um my mission with ATD is to as you said to represent ATD uh particularly uh with the institutions that deal with human rights and most of them are focused in Geneva so you have the UN Human Rights Council that that uh, looks at 
um, human rights violations within countries, but also it discusses some of the general issues on what it means to implement specific human rights in specific situations. And so, for example, at the moment, the Human Rights Council is taking up more and more the issue of climate change and how to limit its impact from a human rights point of view. So then, for instance, you know, ATD Fourth World is very much involved in making sure that the situation of people living in poverty are taking, taken into consideration uh, in the measures to address climate change. For example, in order to deal with droughts, it may be um, the solution that may be considered would be to build I think I think we've lost our guest there. We'll wait for the tech team to get on that and yeah. understand. She's just getting into a great point there. Um, yeah. But yeah, while we wait for our guest to come back, I think um, as I was mentioning before, why don't we talk a little bit about you know the International Day for Eradication of Poverty? Uh, do you want to tell us a bit about that? Yeah. So um, this year marks the twenty. 20- um, 25th anniversary of the World Day to overcome extreme poverty, and the 30th, and the and the 30th anniversary of the International Day um, for the education of eradication of poverty. As mentioned, the theme for this is this year is dignity for all in practice. The dignity of the human being is not only a in in itself but constitute the basis of all fundamental rights and um, preser- preserving and safeguarding the rights of all individuals is an is an essential part of the of Islam and it says in the holy quran that verily allah enjoys justice and the doing of good to others great and i think we've got our guest back um straight back over to you um Janet, sorry about that. Could you could you tell us a bit more about your mission again, please? Yes, I'm sorry. I don't know what happened. No problem. Um, but it means that that in whatever issues are being discussed uh, at the Human Rights Council that are relevant to people living in poverty, we try to ensure that their voices are also heard in those discussions. And so we actually help people living in poverty to come and be a part of those discussions because we feel that their voices uh, are heard. Mm-hmm. So Nelson, um, um, what are some of the things or successes your organization has achieved to raise awareness on the issue of poverty? But now one of the uh, successes is the recognition of the International Day for the Eradication of Poverty, which is being commemorated today, as you know. Uh, because it's commemorated around the world, including at the UN. Um, Another success is also then to draw attention to the fact that extreme poverty is not just a matter of economic development, Mm -hmm. but it's also the result of human rights violations. Because if it was only a matter of economic development, then there'd be no poverty in rich countries. Mm -hmm. So within the Human Rights Council, uh, we were able, with the support of some governments and NGOs and human rights experts, to look at the relationship between extreme poverty and human rights. And the result was the adoption in 2012 mm-hmm. of a set of guiding principles on extreme poverty and human rights. <laughs> and it shows how 
extreme poverty is both the cause and the consequence of human rights violations. Mm-hmm. So that was a, a very important recognition of, of extreme poverty that usually is only looked at from the economic point of view, but it must also be looked at from a human rights point of view. Mm-hmm. And then a, a third success that helps to explain this is a research project that was carried out with Oxford University in six countries, including the UK, mm-hmm. which analyzed more deeply the hidden dimensions of poverty. Uh, we all know that poverty results in, in the lack of decent housing, for instance, but what are, what are all of the various ways in which, uh, in which it, is, it is felt? Mm-hmm. And so the research involved academics, uh, also practitioners like social workers, and people living in poverty themselves. Right. And what it shows is that two dimensions that often are not taken into consideration are social maltreatment and institutional maltreatment in all countries, mm-hmm. in both developed and industrialized countries. And for instance, social maltreatment was the way in which people in poverty are often referred to in words that are very derogatory or stigmatizing. Mm-hmm. In other words, you know, that uh, they're just lazy, or okay. if they're poor, you know, it's their own fault. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we mean by institutional mistreatment in industrialized countries is when the, the what you have to go through in order to benefit from services is so complicated that it becomes almost impossible to manage all of the red tape, mm-hmm. or when families are broken up mm-hmm. instead of being supported. Um, one of the people who participated in this research, for instance, in the UK, said poverty means being part of a system that leaves you indefinitely in a state of fear and uncertainty. Mm-hmm. So this, this is, these were some aspects that are, are, are really important of what it means to be uh, to live in, in poverty and the feelings of shame. Uh, that that often result. Right. So, Janet, could you underline uh, a few fundamental points uh, in um, creating a society where human rights are exercised in the right way? Well, I think you know one of the most important ways is to have dialogue mm-hmm. with the different people who live in a society, and include those who are most affected by a problem in looking for solutions. For example, uh, now, more and more, if we're dealing with people with, with disabilities, you know, we're looking, we include people with disabilities in thinking about what we need to do better in order for people with disabilities to have a decent level of life, to mm-hmm. be able to, to work in jobs, to be able to get into buildings, etc. We talk to people with disabilities about the solutions, but we don't yet do the same with people that live in poverty. Mm-hmm. In other words, how, how can we better help people to overcome poverty? Mm-hmm. Um, what do people in poverty think of our social welfare services? What works and what doesn't? Mm-hmm. You know, in the dialogue is one of the, with people is a really important part of exercising human rights in, a, in the right way. Mm-hmm. But secondly, we need to look at all of the different types of rights because too often <clears throat> when people think of human rights, they only think of political 
and civil rights. Mm-hmm. Then there's the right to vote, you know, the right to, to a fair justice system. Right. But most countries have also signed up to respect what are called social and economic rights, which means the rights to decent education, the health care, the decent housing. Mm-hmm. And so in order to, to ensure those kinds of rights, it's not just a matter of having a good legal system, but we need to also have tax systems that redistribute the mm-hmm. resources so that people can have access to those rights. Uh, because having a healthy, educated population seems like it's important for, or is important for the good of everyone in a uh, society. Absolutely. Because it's people, hard work that creates wealth, and, we, and in return, people need to be able to enjoy a decent level of, of living. Um, so that's where we feel like respecting human rights makes sense in terms of creating societies that are a good place for everyone mm-hmm. uh, to live. Okay, so Jan, uh, we were discussing uh, previously in the show that you know when we had um, uh, the poverty, we only think that you know people don't have money or something like that. So, w- what are the different types of poverty? Well, we talk in terms of both absolute and relative poverty. Uh, absolute poverty means that you can't meet the what you need in order to survive. You know, food, clothes, and shelter. But mm-hmm. relative poverty means that you're not able to live what is considered a normal life mm-hmm. within the society where you live. Mm-hmm. So in industrialized countries, for example, you are poor if you don't have access to the internet, right. or if you don't, or if you can't afford a cell phone, mm-hmm. uh, or you can't get the education you need in order to earn a decent wage. Mm-hmm. So those are two different kinds of poverty. And, and within the idea of, of relative poverty, I mean, that's where we look at the different levels of poverty. And, and uh, because some people are, are poor, but basically they get along fairly well. Right. But extreme poverty is the poverty that is passed on from generation to generation to generation, and people cannot break out of it. Mm-hmm. For instance, uh, an immigrant to the UK may be poor for a little while, but then eventually be able to lift themselves out of poverty as they 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 you know become integrated into the UK society. Mm-hmm. But people in extreme poverty are stuck there, mm-hmm. you know, because of all the human rights violations that we talked about before, and so they're not able to lift themselves out of it without support. Mm-hmm. Right and. Janet, could you could you tell us like how can we get involved in in eradicating poverty? Well, as one of the people with a lived experience in the, as poverty in the UK said, poverty means having to break down barriers. Hmm. So, it one of the one of the ways is to talk about what I mentioned before having dialogues with the different people within your community, including the ones that are living in poverty. So it means that you can you can enjoy an organization that has an experience in doing this, because it isn't always easy because of the social barriers. Um, but then also organizations that are trying 
to change the conditions that, that create the poverty in the first place. But then also, everyone can do something in their own field of work. For instance, in school, in religious institutions, or in workplaces. Hmm. Uh, because we all can push back against trends that are very divisive and that are, are stigmatizing. Uh, because I find, you know, today in our in our countries we've become um, there's too much divisiveness and accusations, you know, ra- of each other rather than than dialogue. A teacher, for instance, can be sure that children that have difficulties in learning are not bullied, mm-hmm. are not blamed because they're not learning well, but instead are given extra support and their parents are involved in finding solutions. Hmm. And then in workplaces, people can make sure that people have access to decent contracts, you know, that they have a decent family work balance, that that people who don't have exactly the right diploma can be offered ways to fill in the gaps through a workshop or hmm. through an apprenticeship opportunity. So everybody in within their own work situation or within their open community can find ways to 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 reach out and have a better understanding of what are the the conditions locally that are creating poverty and what can and then begin to think about with other with other people in that community about what can be done done about it for instance and and you, know, you might want to check out one of the ATD fourth world's websites uh, there's a, a website in the UK, for instance, mm-hmm. in order to get some more some more ideas. Just googling uh, ATD Fourth World dot uh, com, and you can find uh, I mean, sorry dot org, and you can find ATD uh, website. Awesome! Thank you so much, Janet. That was really informative. Thank you, and hope to speak to you again soon. Yes, whenever you like. I'm I'm very much available. This is a very, very important issue that seems to be becoming even more important now with the growing inequality. So I appreciate very much your having me uh, on this program. No problem. It was a pleasure. Have a great day. Bye. Thank you too. Bye-bye. And that was Janet Nelson, who worked with development NGOs in Zambia and Tunisia and, and then for the UNICEF. It was really inspiring uh, and, you know, great explanation that, you know, we can all do our own bit, right? Absolutely. And, uh, and she she obviously uh, commented on the there are various kind of poverty in today's society hmm. and how we can eradicate the poverty. And obviously, we're um, we're uh, this year we are we um, marks the twenty fifth anniversary of the um, uh, World Aid uh, to overcome the extreme 35th. poverty. Sorry, thirty first. Yeah, right. So um, and uh, with re- with this regard, it is very important. You know, we uh, we um, we look after our brothers and uh, brother and mm. sister and uh, we help them, especially. Uh, you know, in uh, the crises are coming, f- energy crisis and the crisis of living. And uh, it is very important, yeah. Definitely, and you know, it's the the Holy Quran talks about so many parts of this, right? We could we mm-hmm. could probably take so many different parts, but you wanted to. 
Absolutely. So, so the 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 um, the theme of this year, as we know, that you know, dignity um, of the human. So the the dignity of the human being is not yet only a fundamental right in itself, but uh, constitute the basis of all other fundamental rights, and um, preserving and safeguarding the rights of all individuals is an essential part of Islam, and it says in the Holy Quran. Verily, Allah enjoys justice and the doing of good to others and giving like kindred and forbids indecency and manifests evil and wrongful transgression. He admonished you that you may take heed. Chapter 16, verse 95. So inequalities of opportunities and income are sharply on the rise and um, each year the gap between the rich and poor gets you know, um, even wider. And this day honors the millions of people suffering from poverty and their daily um, um, courage and recognize the essential global solidarity and shared responsibility we hold to er eradicate poverty and combat all forms of of, uh, discrimination. And also, uh, the Holy Prophet, um, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, said that, you know, um, the very meaning of faith was to desire goodness and to be sincere towards other others and to fulfill their rights. So nobody should be discriminated against or treated differently just because they are, you know, going through difficult circumstances. Definitely. And it, he was a great example as well. Right? Yeah. And so... With that in mind, I mm. want to talk a little bit about causes of poverty. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, is poverty solely economic? Mm-hmm. And one of the root causes of poverty is actually a lack of education. Oh, yeah. You know? And uh, poverty is a cycle. And without education, people aren't able to better their situations. Uh, I know we talked about it on a previous show about brain drain where um, people were seeking uh, to come to... Um, other countries uh, for better circumstances mm-hmm. because uh, they were highly educated and they would seek jobs in other countries and because they were leaving the countries for better lives there mm-hmm. was no investment in the countries and they can't better themselves so having quality or access to quality of education is a massive impact mm-hmm. and you know with that say with that being said according to UNESCO um, over 170 million people could be free of extreme poverty if they only had basic reading skills. Oh, yeah. 170 million. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's, that shows how important education is. And, uh, you know, um, Islam also emphasized the essential, uh, you know, uh, um, emphasized the importance of education. That, you know, uh, one of the sayings of the Holy Prophet uh, says that, you know, seek knowledge um, um, from your lap, from the lap of your mother to the grave. That shows how important um, um, poverty can um, uh, play a role in your, you know, uh, uh, to overcome um, of poverty. Definitely, yeah. yeah education mm. would have uh, have a massive impact, and yeah. you know, despite just having basic reading skills, could potentially impact 170 million people. Yeah. We we find that in many areas of the world people just aren't getting educated mm-hmm. and the reasons vary of course um, oftentimes families need children to work right they right, need right. they don't have 
uh, they need that extra body mm-hmm. sometimes parents aren't able to work yeah. they need their kids to take that responsibility you know there aren't schools close by mm-hmm. you know we're quite lucky in yeah. the UK there's lots of schools available in, yeah. in very in like quite nearby especially in I mean, London look, look at uh, to Africa I mean they don't have um, basic necessity for example water let alone schools near yeah, exactly. near, you know, near by them so uh, yeah one of the one of the main reasons you know people don't have a um, place where, where they can study and you know yeah. definitely and um, or, or it just could be that uh, girls aren't being educated mm-hmm. because of sexism and discrimination yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah the in the holy quran uh yeah so in, in yeah so in the holy quran allah almighty say that you know um uh oh ye who believe let not one people deride another people who may be better than they no let a woman deride another woman um who pay who may be better than they and defame not your own people nor call one another by nicknames but indeed bad indeed is evil reputation after the profession of belief and those who repent not are the wrongdoers so chapter 49 and verse 14 so in this verse um, uh, this verse teaches Muslim that regardless of gender or social status we should not treat people differently or take any their rights any of their rights um, so for example the rights of uh, girls to education and uh, um, conflict has a huge um, impact on poverty as well. You know, especially you know nowadays, um, Ukraine and Russia wars mm. going on. And um, uh, I wonder oh, sometimes war everything stops, right? <laughs> yeah, I wonder sometimes how many you know small children, people, and they are deprived of these studies. And uh, right now there are there is flood as well in Pakistan, and you know. Um, uh, the the Pakistan is already a not very welfare country. They're yep. not very you know um, developed. developed country that way. And um, on upon that they have you know a flood and uh, hundreds of millions of millions of people they are deprived of their uh, basic education. Definitely, mm. and um, I think that it's it's conflict is, is has a huge impact on yeah. poverty, right? And you know, like you mentioned, uh, war or uh, floods or, or you know natural disasters mm-hmm. have a massive impact. And for families and individuals, war and conflict can also make it impossible to stay in one place, right? right. You, to to have an education, for example, or to to build roots, you 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 need to stay in one place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But um, before we continue this discussion, we're going to go to our next guest, uh, who is Jeremy Seabrook who um, is the writer of more than 50 books, uh, very impressive, specialising in social issues, especially poverty in both the UK and South Asia, who is a great person to talk on this subject. Uh, Welcome to the Drive Time Show, uh, Jeremy. Thank you. Well, it's great to have you here. And, you know, I want to ask you something because it's it's something that has come to mind as well. Like, do you believe poverty is, is overused? By overused, um, do you mean that it's that we dwell on it too much? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, or just like the the, the use of it. Um, I think poverty. Um, I, no, I don't. I mean, poverty is an issue that is never really properly and adequately addressed. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, I think when you think of the 
you know, the, 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 the gross product of the, of the world last year was $92 trillion. I think that the miracle is that poverty can survive the creation of so much wealth. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's an extraordinary thing to me mm-hmm. that, um, you know, how can there be, um, uh, yeah, how, how can poverty still exist among such abundance? Mm-hmm. So, JB, um, what are some of the main aspects we should focus on in um, tackling poverty? Well, in tackling it, I mean, I think you have to go much deeper than the, uh, the you know, the usual things about um, how much you raise benefits by. I think there's a much deeper issue in the whole of the economic and social system, really. Um, poverty in this country is defined as anyone who has less than 60% of the median income is poor. Mm-hmm. Now, once you say that, you've actually said that poverty is incurable because forever mm-hmm. and ever, there's mm-hmm. always going to be lots of people who've got less than 60% of the median income. Mm-hmm. So what you've done, you've immortalized poverty. You've actually made poverty incurable. Right. So I think we have to go kind of much deeper than that yeah. and talk about the, you know, the poverty's relation to wealth. It's a much more complex story than we generally hear from most of our politicians. Mm-hmm. Um, so Jimmy, um, how how does poverty have a have an impact on the quality of environmental and developmental issues? Um, well, I, I think that um, I, I, you, what you could ask even a better question mm-hmm. is um, h- how does the creation of wealth contribute to poverty and degradation? And the right. answer is enormously so when i say the problem the problem is really with wealth and how we define wealth mm-hmm. not so much with the poor we focus on the poor because they are generally less vocal um less able to articulate their needs mm-hmm. than the rich who are, who are very very um voluble about what they think so i i, I think that actually the, the the creation of wealth is like a kind of become a quasi-religious cult mm-hmm. and the creation of wealth actually is what is is what is actually um it's destroying the planet it's the creation of wealth that has actually degraded the resource base of the earth and making it threatens climate change and the rendering of the planet almost uninhabitable mm-hmm. so when you talk about the, inf- the it's the other way around it's the impact of wealth upon developmental and uh, ecological integrity that is the real problem mm-hmm. right and you know writing 50 books is 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 no easy feat i'm sure and but i wanted to ask you about a specific book the song of the shed um i wanted to hear a bit more about your inspiration behind it and what what it aims what you aimed to project to your audience Well, um, I did a lot of work in Lancashire in the 1960s mm-hmm. when the cotton industry was um, um, declining and finishing in in, Lang- in, uh, in, in Britain. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and after that, I spent a lot of time in South Asia, in, in Bengal in particular, in Bangladesh and in East Bengal in India. And um, the two sort of came together. And it, 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 uh, uh, what one learns is that um, there was the most brilliant early um garments industry not garments fabrics industry in bengal mm-hmm. that was actually wiped out by the industrial revolution in manchester mm-hmm. and the beautiful sheer muslin that was made in uh 
in, in Bengal was that then that market was cancelled by the forced import of inferior coarse materials from Manchester. Mm-hmm. And, and Dhaka and Bangladesh became the first site of the first major deindustrialization of the modern world. Right. That, that was really interesting. And then when it came to the 1960s and 70s, the garments industry, the cotton industry in Britain de- declined, and we started re-importing garments from Bangladesh. So the wheel went full circle, and that's what really, um, that's what really inspired the book, looking at the way in which um, um, you know, um, now that Bangladesh is once more a, a major global centre of garments manufacture, it shows nothing lasts forever. Everything can be swept away. Mm-hmm. Like just just as the just as the the garments the gar, just as the fabrics industry of Bengal was destroyed in the early nineteenth century, mm-hmm. so the uh, garments industry in Britain <laughs> was. Um, was was destroyed with the deindustrialization, and now the re, ra, the arise of Bangladesh once more as a centre of it, it just the mutability, the changeability, the eternal cycle, and that's really what uh, made me want to write the song of the shirt because it just shows how people's lives are caught up in arbitrary industrial processes and then discarded and then taken up again and then discarded. Mm-hmm. That's also that's also uh, that's how people remain poor. Mm-hmm. So, Jamie, you mentioned the um, the Dhaka industry, and could could we say that you know um, the industrialization and um, the modernization is one of the cause of poverty? Could we say that? But it causes a different kind of poverty. I mean, there's two kinds of poverty. There's the poverty um, of scarcity, where you are genu- genuinely living with a lack of resources, mm-hmm. and then there's the poverty which we see today, which is a contrived poverty. That's what I said at the beginning. With, right. with, with such a huge global uh, global creation of wealth, mm-hmm. um, it's we, there's no need for poverty. Mm-hmm. So the creation of poverty, the perpetuation of poverty, is an ideological and uh, artificial creation mm-hmm. because because if you don't have poverty if we could cure poverty but if you don't have it then how will you justify the continuous demand for growth right, right. you know growth 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 was Liz Truss's mantra <laughs> on yeah. in her in her conference speech you know yeah. growth 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 well if you didn't have poverty mm-hmm. yeah. you wouldn't be able to ask for more growth because you wouldn't need it if people said we've got enough mm-hmm. could you exactly. imagine that ever happening it would destroy the system mm-hmm. so, so poverty is perpetuated artificially precisely mm-hmm. to keep the need for economic growth going forever okay but as we know um nothing lasts forever in this world and to talk about limitless economic growth is not only contrary to common sense it's mm-hmm. blasphemous to religion because nothing in this world lasts forever you That's can't right. have economic growth in perpetuity Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Definitely. Yeah. Thank you so much, Jeremy. Uh, it was a pleasure to have you on the show. Have a great okay, rest of your cheers. day. Okay, cheers. Thank you. Bye. 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 And that was Jeremy Seabrook, who was the writer of more than 50 books, wow. oh, yeah. um, specializing in social issues, especially poverty in both the UK and South Asia. So that was really interesting because for me, I was, oh, we kind of. Said, spoke to me in the sense of oh, poverty is kind of 
always going to be there no yeah. matter what because of the way we kind of look at it right and I um, yeah. thought that that was quite uh, profound and, and for me you want to you would hope you know like when people say well, if you had one wish what would that be most people usually say you know <laughs> end world hunger or you know, end yeah. poverty in the world yeah. so the or, fact that we or some of um, like some say that I want to become Superman or something like that. <laughs> yeah, to 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 save to save everyone. But yeah. like, I think that what what's interesting there is that it's always about the way we look at things. Absolutely, um, yes. And I think that um, I think I saw this uh, YouTube video on social media um, where there's always the the looking up can mm -hmm. keep you in like feeling like you don't have enough or feeling <laughs> like you are in poor because it's the person with the bicycle right uh, no, right. so someone who doesn't have a bicycle is looking at the person with the bicycle someone <laughs> who has a bicycle is looking at the person with the right. car the person with the car is looking at someone with a private chair and, you know, and it always goes on you can always look upwards and mm -hmm. I think that you know Islam teaches us to, to look after those who like uh, financially speaking are mm -hmm. below you yeah. um, and to, to serve them and you know I think it humbles you to be reminded that you know what I'm actually maybe I might not be financially well off there is also I I believe you know health is, is, a, is a big part of being rich like you know how they say health is wealth like for Absolutely, me that, yeah. that's yeah. that's a big part of it and education is such mm -hmm. a massive thing like um like you, like we were discussing earlier, there there aren't like not everybody has access to a great education system or even a welfare system, yeah. right? Yeah. So a welfare system, um, um, if we um, have you know in this country we have a welfare system. So in the UK, um, the welfare system in the UK is designed to help British families when they go um, through tough times. This includes benefit for. Um, uh, working families, unemployed people, people with disabilities, foster children, and so on and so forth. The money used to um, to pay towards all of these benefits um, come from UK residents, mandatory contributions to the uh, welfare states by citizens of the country ensure that everyone gets help in times of need. Most commonly, um, different UK benefits come in the form of grants, allowances and pensions or through the um, provision of education, housing and healthcare. However, um, Islam has had a welfare system way before it was started in the UK. Financial sacrifice is an essential teaching in Islam. Muslims are taught to respect everyone and help out in the times of need. The, the financial sacrifice uh, that Allah has described here specifically requires spending for the love of God, for his creation. However, the intention of spending is also specified, so it rules out any spending that one may do for the sake of getting favors, worldly gains, or other selfish reason. So in uh, chapter 2, verse 178, Allah says, it is not righteousness that you turn your face to the east or the west, but truly righteous is he who believes in Allah and the last day and the angels and the book and the prophets and spends his money out of love for him on the kindred, on the orphans and the needy 
and the wayfarer, and those who ask for the for the wayfarer, and those who ask for charity, and for ransoming the captives, and observe prayer, and pay the zakat, and those who fulfill their promise when they have made one, and the patent in poverty and afflictions, and the steadfast in the time of war. It is these who have proved truthful, and it is these who are truly God-fearing. So, yeah, so in the Holy Quran, here the, the um, intention should be that you, you are you're sacrificing your money out of the goodness of your heart and your uh, willingness uh, to help rather than, you know, doing it for the for that you look good or receive admiration from the people yeah it's not about yeah. like showing off to other people hey guys look how much I've helped <laughs> this person or let yeah. me bring this person out you know dignity right yeah I think that that was really important for me as well because um, you you saying uh, that oh I've helped this person or I made this person mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. you're taking away their dignity so when when you've helped them and, yeah. and it nullifies the good deed mm-hmm. and is uh, for example uh, it's it, it's an example that comes to mind was that um, a supermarket kind of came under fire for uh, labeling their products um, a certain way mm-hmm. so that everybody kind of knew from the packaging that they uh-huh. were the cheaper version <laughs> so a lot of people are like hey you're kind of labeling us poor mm-hmm. if we buy this yeah. so it's it's the dignity aspect of it i think is really interesting and um you know what um you were saying about looking good or receiving admiration from people mm-hmm. not being the objective um we can find that this is actually really beautifully explained by the second caliph of the Ahmadiyya muslim community uh hazrat mirza bashiruddin mahmud ahmed um May Allah be pleased with him in his book, The Economic System of Islam. I just want to read you um, a little section of it. Mm-hmm. Um, the, is- the Islamic view is that if human life were reduced to a succession of compulsory acts, it would preclude free choice and a person could not be held accountable for his actions after death. For example, if a Muslim were compelled by the government to do a good deed, then in the hereafter he could not claim credit for it. He would be told that it was his government rather than him that was responsible for his good deed. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it's, it's, it's all like the intention behind it, right? Absolutely. Like the, the Hadith says deeds are judged by motives, right? Absolutely. So um, I think this is the example of uh, Hazrat Umar as well, right? Yeah, so um, as, as we just talking about you know that uh, Islam uh, uh, laid down the welfare system well before um, the developed countries and one of the example uh, of that system is you know Hazrat um, Umar Farooq may Allah be pleased with him um, uh, during the time of Hazrat Umar he set up uh, many different departments for the smooth running of a country this includes things such as the police department accounts department Department's Department of Justice. And during the lifetime of the Holy Prophet, there was no need of setting up a treasury as the wealth which come from outside was dif- distributed amongst Muslim by the Holy Prophet straight away. Hazrat Abu Bakr, who is the second caliph uh, of Islam, sorry, uh, first caliph of the Islam, uh, too did not um, find any need to set up a treasury as he also distributed whatever was received from outside. However, during the time of Hazrat Umar, 
um, when large sums of money and other valuables started coming to Medina, Hazrat Osman approached Hazrat Umar and and he suggested that a, a treasury be set up um, to store the wealth and valuables which were left over after giving the allowances. So the second caliph, Hazrat Umar, agreed to this proposal and thus the first treasury was set up in Medina and afterwards in other cities as well. So after setting up the treasury, Hazrat Umar, second caliph of Islam, started various programs uh, for the welfare and progress of community. He allowed stipends to Muslim. For this purpose, a, a committee of three persons was appointed, um, which um, enlisted the names of all of the people in in a register. And when the registration was completed, he, f- he fixed allowances for the family members of the Holy Prophet ﷺ and long-standing companions, soldiers, and their families, women, children, and you know the elderly people. So it should be also noted that everyone was entitled to uh, uh, allowances, regardless of their religion, creed, or their uh, skin, uh, the, the the color of their skin. For example, a Muslim who became was um, too you know old to earn his uh, living was given maintenance allowance allowance from the state um, treasury. Similarly, a non-Muslim who was um, unfit for for work um, because of old age or due to some other um, misfortune was you know given maintenance allowance for the treasury from the treasury. Definitely, yeah. and, and that's a great example mm. from uh, the second Khalifa of Islam. Yeah, and you know today. As we discussed with, with this topic of poverty, we've highlighted that actually in Islam we believe that is the duty of Muslims to look out for their poorer counterparts. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it is undeniable that people do not get treated differently because they may not be as well off, well off as others or living in complete poverty. However, in, in Islam we are taught uh, to treat everyone equally no matter what. Uh, Islam also teaches us to help those in need and Islam teaches Muslims to take care of their relatives who may be less fortunate Mm -hmm. than themselves um, thus encouraging the distribution of wealth and and this is uh, made of an example in in chapter 2 verse uh, 216 of the Holy Quran where it says they ask thee what they shall spend say whatever of good and abundant wealth you spend should be for parents and near relatives and orphans and the needy and the wayfarer and whatever good you do surely Allah knows it perfectly well and after the news we'll be back with the next topic um, universities
You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Welcome back to the Drive Time Show. Uh, you're listening to Fahim and Imran. Um, we are here to discuss uh, a second topic after discussing poverty in the first hour. Um, we're discussing university. Um, and we're, we're going to ask the question, is it worth it? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I think that... Uh, what do you think then? Is it worth it? What do I personally think? Yeah. All right, so... Um, the many years ago that I went to university, I think it definitely was worth it. Mm-hmm. Uh, personally speaking, mm-hmm. I think that uh, apprenticeships are very attractive at the moment. I think that mm-hmm. they, um, because if you know exactly like, like kind of the the area you want to go to, you can learn on the job and educate yourself, and mm-hmm. then you can kind of. Because I find that a lot of people go to university not knowing what they want to do. Right. So. But then I'm saying on the flip side, where I think personally mm-hmm. university is good, is it teaches you how to uh, critically think. Mm-hmm. It teaches you how to, uh, it, you know, I've had um, I had a colleague um, at, a, at an old job who said to me that if he hadn't been to university, mm-hmm. he would have probably been racist because <laughs> he, he came from a very well, small town yeah. where there was um, like... Uh, very limited uh, people of of, mm-hmm. of color and um, and uh, like literally knew only white people and mm-hmm. and and, and uh, yeah he said that it was only until university that I actually met other people of other cultures and started wow. to appreciate that so I think that there are advantages of university but if it comes down to simply like whether it's worth it in my personal opinion. Mm-hmm. I feel like there are other routes to like apprenticeships, um, and I think that um, you know, even for example, Elon Musk has, has said like, "I don't care about your education; I just want to know like how you think." And I think that that is a bit of more of a way that that people and companies are starting to think that it's less about what you can do on paper or what your paper trail is; mm-hmm. it's more about who you are and what you're trying to achieve. And um, but yeah, that's my personal opinion. How about yourself? I think um, I think um, for me, practical and theory is both important. Mm-hmm. So for me, um, if you have a you know, part-time job uh, according to your studies, so for example, if you're became became uh, becoming an IT engineer or IT mm-hmm. something, then I think it is um, for my um, my personal opinion is that it is very important for you that to you know to to work um, with a certain company who also. Um, uh, excel in uh, uh, IT department uh, because I think the theory alone doesn't teach you that much as I long said. as you have a practice as well and um, mm, I think it's just um, um, before you uh, before before you're doing a driving test you have to pass a theory as well yeah. so I think this is a similar kind of thing yeah I think that's a great example of it like yeah. you need both but yeah. um, equally mm-hmm. there's no way that you could drive by just learning Absolutely, uh, yes. the theory, right? Yeah. So, but you know that's not what university does. So, yeah. okay, why are we talking about university um, and whether it's worth it today? The reason is because education for both women, men and women, has been heavily influ- uh, emphasized in Islam. Mm-hmm. In the Quran, we find numerous prayers that Muslims are encouraged to recite, such as this one: "Lord, bestow on me increase of knowledge." Chapter 20 verse 115 Um, And you know According to university admissions Services the number of students To uh, applying To university has actually increased Mm -hmm. Um, 
and more and more school leavers are opting to pursue higher education um, with the recent changes to the workforce and economy as a consequence of COVID, the COVID-19 pandemic and the rise of, of cost of living, students right. may consider alternative routes such as learning a trade through an apprenticeship pro- program. But ultimately, the question we want to ask is, is are these a viable alternative to higher education? You guys know my opinion, um, but is a student taking out a loan to pay for university course still worth it? So we're going to discuss all of these things with our guests as well today. Yeah. Um, if you want to get involved in the conversation, don't forget you can call us on 0208-687-7878. And you can tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. Maybe you're studying, maybe you uh, went to university, maybe you're in an apprenticeship. Tell us, tell us, what do you think? Is the university actually worth it? Um, so... What, what what's happening with school leavers and, and things like that today? Yeah, so uh, in 2022, the number of uh, 18 years old um, aiming to go to university directly from school increased by another 5%. And uh, the, the, the last two years have shown successive uh, increase in university applications. According to the UCAC's university admissions service, um, 320,000 sixth formers have applied for university pl- uh, place, places so far mm-hmm. compared with the 306,000 in 2021 and almost 50,000 more than <coughs> sorry excuse me uh, and almost 50,000 more than at the same stage in 2019 wow. so there is a big yeah so there there has also been a shift in the and demographics of the students applying to university, the number of applicants from uh, disadvantages, disadvantaged areas has also continued to rise, uh, with 28% of 18 years olds from areas with the lowest educational attainment applying, compared with just under, under 18% in 2013. So all of these sta- stats suggest that more and more students feel their um, future career are better saved by going to university. But what are the benefits and drawbacks of undertaking a degree? We will discuss, discuss in this program as well. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think that university, like, uh, you know, um, personally, I went to university longer than I needed to I also did a master's so okay. I did I did enjoy studying I thought mm-hmm. that it was very beneficial but um, what what would you know because um, not to give my give away my age but when I <laughs> uh, when I went to university I was paying three thousand okay. pounds uh, but nowadays they're paying like nine thousand pounds oh. so I, I'm not oh. sure if, if it's but that's that's just me but like mm-hmm. so attaining a degree most students would have achieved a bachelor's degree after three years of study and can either take an uh, undertake a postgraduate degree such as a master's or a PhD or enter the workforce. For many fields such as those in STEM and medicine, um, a university degree is a minimum requirement and cannot be replaced by an internship. Mm-hmm. So I think there are certain like professions where you must go to university, right? Like I don't think you can do an apprenticeship <laughs> to do medicine, right? Because right. <laughs> they can't they can't have you learning on the job if it's if you if you're becoming a surgeon. I would hope not, at least. Yep. Um, and 
the salary potential. So these are advantages for, of, of going to university. There's definitely one with salary potential uh, as the as the statistics show us. Um, so the data from the uh, Department of Education suggests that uh, the median graduate salary is £10,000 higher than non-graduates mm -hmm. and the employment rate is considerably lower for non-graduates at mm -hmm. uh, 71.6% than for graduates 87.4% okay. so you can see that's, that's quite a big difference there right um, and then another advantage of uh, university is um, teaching right mm -hmm. um, for many students attending university yeah so um teaching is one of the uh, i think one of the main um uh, benefit to going to universities right, yeah. and uh, so attending university is a chance to you know broaden their horizons through the teaching that is being delivered lecturers come from wide variety of backgrounds and provide alternative points of view many of the teachers at university are world leaders in their respective fields furthermore groups discussions uh, certainly um, challenge students to deep understand, deeply understand um, and criticize any opinion they hold about a particular subject, promoting critical thinking. So you, you're discussing yeah. before, yeah, that. Yeah. Right, because like, I think that the, the teaching part of it, I think, uh, you know, um, with social sciences, for example, the, the debates you can have on politics and, uh, you know, uh, issues, development and all of these types of things that the conversation part of it I think is great um, right. I think that that you can also find out more about um, things that you may not necessarily have enjoyed before you try them out so mm -hmm. I think that the teaching aspect is definitely uh, one of the big uh, draws to a university degree because you get in most cases someone who is a, is a pioneer in their field as mm -hmm. well in their mm -hmm. field of study that's done like 20 odd years of experience usually um, uh, not to say that all professors are old but like uh, <laughs> a lot of them have done this like dedicated their, a big portion of their lives to, to right. study a certain subject so to be able to talk to them you know we get lots of them on the guests uh, on guests as, as uh, on the show right because mm -hmm. they truly know deeply about their subjects and the experts so to be able to learn from someone who knows so much about their subject mm -hmm. I think um, that is definitely one of the draws and uh, with that in mind I think networking is, 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 is a great one as well because university doesn't just provide the opportunity to learn from these lectures and teachers uh, you know you all the clubs the societies and, and things like that and the research opportunities that allow people to make the students to make these uh, connections with mm -hmm. peers and seniors and you know they can be invaluable like mm -hmm. they, there can be people who you you like make friends with, and and they uh, like um, you you come across them in, in later on in life, and, right. and uh, help you have an opportunity that you may not have got. So I think that definitely networking. I think and a lot of universities provide networking opportunities and graduate schemes and uh, all of these things. So it's I think that's definitely an advantage. Um, but. Islam also pays a uh, huge emphasis on uh, gaining knowledge and as the expert I'll let you discuss that. <laughs> <laughs> so um, uh, as you said that Islam um, pays a huge emphasis on the importance of gaining knowledge and it has been narrated that the Holy Prophet peace and blessings of Allah be upon him said that 
the word of wisdom is the most um, is the lost property uh, property of a Muslim so that whenever he finds it he should take it and he's the most entitled to it this is the this is the saying from the Tirmizi and he also enjoyed his follower to seek knowledge even if they have to travel to China well that's so that, that's dedication right yeah. especially at that time to yeah. travel that far but yeah. uh, before we, we continue um, discussing the advantages of university I think we're gonna go to our first um, guest who is uh, Mustafa Siddiqui a recent graduate from Jamia Ahmadiyya UK and who is currently working in international translation and research office for the Ahmadiyya Muslim community uh, assalamu alaikum and welcome to the show Thank you for having me. No, thank you for being here. Um, so, you know, for the benefit of our listeners, um, could you please tell us what Jamia is and um, how is it different from other mainstream universities or higher education? It's a, uh, it's what it literally translates as the Ahmadiyya University. It's perhaps best described as it's a seminary essentially because it's an institution for the training and uh, development of missionaries to go you know, across the world to spread the teachings of Islam and Ahmadiyya. Mm-hmm. So there's, um, there's a theological um, course supplemented by studying various modern languages, things mm-hmm. like comparative religion. And of course, the, a huge part of it is studying the teachings and texts of Islam itself to be able to create a missionary. Right. As well as, let me not, let me not forget, uh, a lot of moral and spiritual development and discipline that you won't find at other universities, mm-hmm. which is perhaps the key key difference. It's not just about seeking pure academic knowledge in the dry sense. It also comes with what the most important thing is with the religion is that you need to have the spiritual training is the foremost, most important part of the training there because that's ultimately the essence of what you're trying to spread to the world. Right, right. So, Musfa, uh, most universities offer a degree that is three to four years long, but a degree in Jamia Ahmadi is about seven years long. Why is that? So the question, I believe this was once presented as a, as a suggestion to the second Khalifa that the, the community's money could be spared by having a short and a more intensive course covering the same material within uh, within a few years as opposed to seven years in the the caliph, as far as I remember, emphatically rejected the suggestion, saying that the reason why it's seven years is because it's, as I was alluding to before, it's more it's fundamentally about having a spiritual and moral transformation, which you can't get, for example, with flexible learning options like we have at other universities where you have like distance learning, learning from home, evening courses. Because it because becoming the requirements of a missionary require a fundamental change in your life to be able to become an example for other people. It needs to be it needs to cover the formative years of sixteen to twenty three or eighteen to twenty five, because that's fundamentally when you become who you are. Mm-hmm. So, so you previously mentioned that you know uh, Jamia uh, as an is an Arabic word and it was also translated as as a gathering. Um, so how is this, this the university name? I don't understand that. Good question. Um, the the root word there means to to gather, but mm-hmm. that's also the word in Arabic. It's very very similar to the Arabic word, which is from the same root, 
which mm-hmm. means which is also used to refer to a mosque. Right. And that basically is an allusion to the Islamic the, the concept that a university, wherever it is, whether it's a religious one or not, should be a center of learning and mm-hmm. should be a place where people together mm-hmm. can, can gather to develop their knowledge and develop their understanding and become more learned and more and better educated people. And we, which is which is the fundamental concept between behind our job over any university in essence. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, so how do um, staff in this institute um, assess whatever Jamia meets the need and interest of students who are applying to study there rather than at a public university? Yeah, so you're right to allude to the fact that there's a difference in the fundamental, maybe the only difference in fact in terms of application. Jamia, just like other universities, has academic requirements. You mm-hmm. have to you meet academic standards, you have to be able to just commit to the course. But the difference, well, one difference is that Jamia doesn't charge you. Um, <laughs> okay. There's that. But but what actually matters is the fact that if you don't meet the academic requirements, that's not, that's not the be all and end all. And it's not, it's not a strict, it's not a strict criterion because mm-hmm. um, there's several examples of people who um, weren't considered to be fit for entry um, and and during reflect this is further reflected during the studies of Jamia so people who struggled mm-hmm. significantly extensively throughout the seven years of Jamia but as whether it's application the application and whether it's passing the years and getting through the exams and graduating there have been many people who haven't met the academic standards because fundamentally mm-hmm. it's a university for spiritual and moral training ultimately though knowledge is important it's not what is essentially important for spirituality and having good morals. And mm-hmm. that's the difference mm-hmm. behind uh, with this university as compared to others is by no means necessarily, in fact, not at all, were necessarily the best students, the most intelligent ones. Mm-hmm. This is not fundamentally about academic prowess. It's about your your moral character and your spiritual status. Okay, so the the institute is just about gaining knowledge, or is it? You mentioned that you have this spiritual training there as well, and um, how 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 is this? Um, I mean, how's how these spiritual training works? And uh, uh, you know, most of the university they just studied, um, they just teach the normal subjects, and you know, so what is yeah. the um, different different uh, the outline of Jamia? If you can understand this question, um, the moral training aspect involves, of course, life there, um, in particular, or well, as for every Muslim, but particularly there, because everybody everybody is united in faith. Is that the, the of course, um, life their daily life that revolves around the five daily press and the reading of the Quran. But because in Jamia, Jamia provides a unique environment in the sense that Muslims do, do out working in the world, for example, studying in the world have the five-digit prayers and the reading of the Quran and then other things but the Jamia environment is unique and that's it's a holistic spiritual experience because there's the five-digit prayers and the studying of the Holy Quran which is the essence of the life of every Muslim and then there's the fact that you study Islam as well mm-hmm. and attending the five-digit prayers waking up in the morning for the early morning voluntary prayer doing um, charity make developing yourself morally is actually a fundamental part of the course Right. And that's that's an essential part. So you'll find the teachers and and the lecturers emphasizing your spiritual status and your moral value just as much, if not more, in fact, 
than the than the actual content of the lessons in terms of what's written in the textbooks. Right, right. So, so what is that? What is a typical day like at Jamian? What would you say to those unfamiliar to its setup who might say that you know students are missing out a normal life university? Well, it depends on your perspective of what a normal life is. Mm-hmm. When, w- when Islam and religion in general identifies the problems in this world, despite the the undoubted successes in the world we live in, there's so much immorality in this world that, to a certain extent, to be able to change the world, you have to take some time out of it to be able to develop a different perspective. Right. So, if you went to if a missionary studied studied and lived university life, for example, or did anything mm-hmm. in exactly the same way as the people he's going to spread the message of Islam to, there would no longer be a difference between the missionary and the people he's going to spread the message of Islam to or the people he's going to communicate to afterwards. Mm-hmm. So part of the part of not not entirely of course, because a Muslim is never ever allowed to cut himself off of society and that's not what Islam is for. But to a certain extent it's important to have a lifestyle as different to what you'd find elsewhere because that's what gives you the perspective and the training to bring what you've learned there and what you've gained there spiritually and morally to people who don't have um, <laughs> don't necessarily have the same intensity of religious uh, the, the peoples in whose lives the, the religion religious part isn't the same or don't you don't have the same positive influences thank you very much Mustafa Siddiqui that was uh, really enlightening to find out more about Jamia what it's like um, really appreciate that and we'll hopefully speak That's to you right. again soon that was uh, Mustafa Siddiqui, a recent graduate from Jamia Ahmadiyya UK, uh, and he's currently working in the International Translation and Research Office uh, for the Ahmadiyya Muslim Community, who have a lot of work to do. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I I think that, that was a really nice perspective uh, to understand what Jamia is, mm-hmm. and as we were discussing before, you know, one of the I personally I haven't been to Jamia, but mm-hmm. um, I'm sure that the the spiritual um the, the relationship you can build with god and and uh, your creator and know your purpose i think that that is something that you get at jami that you don't get at most universities i think you go in knowing your purpose what you're trying to achieve just like a for example with some university degrees is like um medicine you know you know you come you're going to be a doctor but i think that with jami you really understand okay i'm here to to uh educate other people on Islam and, and study it and I think that that's a, that's a great mindset and um, you know do you want to share any uh, experiences yeah. as, as my uh, as my friend as well Mustafa as he he just you know uh, mentioned that the main aspect of the Jamia is to focus on your you know, spiritual state rather than you know just a, just a, f- a physical side of the mm. world so we basically studied there and uh, different subjects like uh, you know comparative religion and the translation of the holy quran and so the the main aspect of uh, uh, jamia well, give, give us a give us an advantage what is it that you walked out that you feel like this was this was a real advantage from going to jamia what would you say is the biggest I think, advantage uh, yeah so the spiritual aspect of yeah. it so the main advantage which i personally enjoy there because um, you studied there and you practice along with the study there yeah. so because so for example if you learn that Islam taught us you know the five daily prayer then you're at the same time in Jamia you're doing five daily prayers mm. so it's, it's that aspect which I really enjoy 
there and uh, um, it, you know it show it it um, when you study and then when you apply it that study it um, you know it gives Mostly you satisfying. certain sat- satisfaction yeah. and it gives you a certain level of confidence you know yeah. and uh, that you are uh, you enjoy in your life so, oh, that's great yeah. so with with those great uh, examples of, of advantages of going to Jamia um, we're going to discuss uh, some of because you know we've highlighted quite a few advantages of university we, we should now look at the other side and mm-hmm. And think about what are some of the disadvantages. Um, I think the first thing that anyone will always say is cost, right? Yeah. Um, and and the financial burden of a degree isn't to be taken lightly. Mm-hmm. I think that since um, tuition fees were tripled in 2012, um, university applicants have faced a large debt uh, that keeps rising due to high interest rates. Uh, the average graduate debt tuition compounded uh, by maintenance costs and higher rates of interest stands at more than £50,000 for a three-year degree. Um, after the maintenance grant uh, was scrapped in 2016, many students have struggled to manage financially during term time. Um, I, I know personally, I, I, I had a job as well. Um, the grant was replaced by the maintenance loan, mm-hmm. which averages at £509 per month, but its value has since declined in real terms as rent and other living costs have risen. Um, the pressure then extends to parents, mm-hmm. um, who pay an average £360 a month to support their children's studies according to a recent survey right. and students don't get the full maintenance loan if their parents' household income is higher than £30,000 so parents are expected to make up the rest right. um, you know I think that, that especially with the, with the rising cost of living mm-hmm. it may become pretty much unaffordable for many school leavers to attend university okay. so I think that um, uh, you know the I'm sure people will be opting for full uh, for part-time uh, degrees or, or to to make sure that they can work uh, at the same time or doing full-time degrees and working at the same time um, and then another um, advantage uh, that um, disadvantage disadvantage yeah. apologies um, disadvantage you would say is um, well, what do you think? You'd so think. yeah, I think the uh, one of the um, main um, disadvantages which I think is that you know um, you lack the experience um, because um, so some degrees such as medicine or veterinary science appear. Appear, uh, prepare you for a particular career path. Others like engineering and computer science are um, geared towards certain areas of work. These degrees, these degree co- um, courses give you skills that you can directly apply in your job. Um, should you choose to continue in your field of study, however, many roles are open to graduates with a, with a degree in any discipline. And according to research by the new College of the Humanities, half of the graduates end up in jobs like these. Uh, your degree may give you valuable transferable skills, but you will have to learn the technical skills you need to carry out your job. So, as we were discussing before, you know, mm. so uh, it is very important to um, have the theory and practical. Yeah. Because the study, um, the study alone, I think. 
um, in that way you you can um, um, you can basically have um, have a lower capacity you know to how to apply that study so if you work and if you study and works in the same field um, that will be beneficial f- benefit for you definitely for as you, you mentioned yeah. I think the driving test is a great example of that like, yeah. um, you know you could know all of the road signs you can know all of the laws mm-hmm. um, but still doesn't mean you can drive yeah. <laughs> but yeah um, I think we go to um, our next guests actually um, do you want to introduce our guests So um, uh, our next guest is a um, graduate with a BCSC in um, physiology, currently... Um, psychology. Psychology, sorry. Currently uh, completing uh, MSc in um, physiology and with mental health sciences. Yeah. And we actually have two guests on the line. Um, and then we have Ala al uh who is a BSc in psychology, uh, who graduated um, in her BSc psychology earlier this year. Um, thank you both for joining us and welcome to the show. No worries. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Um, so I think we're going to start off um, with Amtul. Yeah. So Amtul, yes. um, um, higher education in the UK has become very expensive and um, one is left with a huge cost of debt by the um, end of a decree. Although there mm-hmm. are a condition for who pay, pays back and who doesn't still... It is. Um, is this a um, commitment worth making? So I would say that the answer really depends on the individual. Mm-hmm. For me, I was passionate about studying psychology when I was in secondary school. I knew that this was something where my interest lies. And if I wanted to work towards a career in the field, I would have to go to university. Mm-hmm. So um, and during the application process, we were told how the loans would work and that you wouldn't have to start repaying them until you earn a certain amount. Um, and so in some ways, I'm thankful to be in a country where there is a system where any young person can get into higher education if they if they want to, um, without having to immediately, immediately worry about the financial aspect. So I think that that is a great privilege, especially when compared to other poorer education systems around the world. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so for me, I would say it is worth it, but sometimes people... They feel social pressure to go to university or to study like a certain course by their families or their friends. Mm-hmm. And in this case, I would say it, it might not be really worth it because of obviously how much debt really can build up over the years. Right. And also because, yeah, achieving success in higher education, it requires dedication and interest. So it would be really difficult if you were just going to university for the sake of it. Mm-hmm. So, uh, until despite the high tuition fee and uh, the debt, more and more people are uh, entering university each year in the UK. Uh, what is the driving force? The f- driving force for young people to pursue higher education, regardless of the cost. I think there are several re- several reasons. Um, I think the main one being that having a degree can greatly enhance employment prospects. Um, And obviously in a number of jobs such as healthcare professionals, like doctors and nurses, lawyers, and most teachers, you you do need a degree to actually get into them. Um, And I think, like I mentioned before as well, the social pressures do play a role because I've seen that people get into university simply because their parents wanted them to um, or because most of their friends are going. Um, And sometimes in school, we haven't been told that 
I mean, we are told that in um, if you don't go into higher education, you can't be successful, you can't really have a proper career path, which isn't necessarily true. Um, and yeah, relating to that, I think often there is a lack of knowledge mm-hmm. on the other options outside of university. Um, when I was at school, apprenticeships and stuff, we kind of, we only briefly touched on them and teachers would target them mostly towards students who might not be doing as well with their grades. So, um, and then also the social aspect of like the freedom and everything, I think mm-hmm. those are the main kind of drivers. Right. And so, um, Ala, I wanted to um, ask you, uh, yeah. would this, the students beginning their degrees now like face different channel challenges to the ones uh, who, who may have faced them when you started. Uh, are universities adapting and accommodating enough for students in these constantly changing times? Um, sorry, can you say that again? I was saying that, um, are, do you feel that universities are adapting to uh, the uh, and accommodating enough for students during these constantly changing times? Um, yeah, I do think so. Um, like especially after COVID and all like all the changes happening and stuff. Um. Right, and um, do you, do you th- do you find that um, despite the high tuition fees and 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 the debt, more and more people are entering um, university each year? So, what do you think the the uh, force for young people is to pursue higher education, regardless of the cost? Um, so I do think like they should lower the cost especially after like COVID because it wasn't really like fair um, on us as in like we didn't get like the, ama- the amount of money we were paying I don't think it was worth like what we were pay- getting um, during COVID times but like people are still going into unis which I think is like a good thing because even though we're getting to pay all the money back but like they do do it in like monthly installments um, and they only take money from you like if you like earn a certain amount which is helpful helpful for students. Right, and um, so uh, told, uh, with uh, apprenticeships um, are also like uh, a popular route for some students because yep. it allows them to, to gain skills and earn at the same time. Does higher education uh, limit that? Yeah, so from my personal experience um, at university, I was given the opportunity to, to do a year-long work placement during my course. So this was great for me because at the end I had my degree as well as um, useful work experience. So in my case, higher education actually allowed for some exposure to real-life work settings um, and also things like volunteering that you can do during your course. But again, I think that really depends on an individual and their efforts. Um, but otherwise, I think university can limit exposure to an extent because most of the time you're like in a lecture hall or studying in your own time at home, whereas with an apprenticeship, you could cover like theory and study whilst also like making a living, earning money um, and having like practical experience in your chosen field. And with university, I think you don't really have as much opportunity to network either. So, yeah. Great. And... um so for you, Ala, I wanted to ask, like, does study at university um, how help find what you want to do afterwards? Like, do you feel like it's helped? Yeah, definitely. Like, um, other than obviously the content we learn in lectures, you get to meet, like, so many different people at uni from, like, lectures and, like, your supervisor. 
um, and I also did like a placement here, which I think helped me a lot, like to know what I want, what I'd like, I'd like to do in the future and whatnot. Um, and also after we graduate, um, the university, like you can still contact them and they can help you with like so many opportunities and jobs you can get. So Allah, what is the biggest change that you feel in yourself ever since you went to university? Um, I think there's so many things. Like I think the whole uni experience kind of changes you. Like mm-hmm. um, definitely like my confidence, determination, and also like being independent. Um, especially like if you live um, on campus, mm-hmm. uh, you get to like see how like living alone is and. Yeah, I think like so you get to experience so many new things. Right. I think mostly like independence. Mm-hmm. S- speaking of in- independence, I wanted to um, ask Amadol, like, how are you able to maintain your Muslim identity amidst all the social pressures of university? Yeah, so for me, I would say the most important part was like my friendship group, because most of my friends at university they were Muslim. And, and those that weren't Muslim, they kind of understood the boundaries and values that I have like as a Muslim woman. Um, and this meant that there were really rarely any pressures from my social circle to do things that were obviously get, went against my values. Um, because naturally, your company has a big influence on your behavior. So, um, and then also, wearing a headscarf or wearing a hijab, I think that really helped me as well. Um, because if you're if you're showing everyone that you're Muslim and everyone who sees you knows that you're Muslim, then you have a responsibility to set an example um, and to not cross um, your limits and um, just being strict about your boundaries, I think, and also communicating them with people around you, um, whether they're your friends or just people you're working with. So student loans are always um, stirring a new debt. And uh, as we spoke earlier, the financial situation makes things worse. Um, do you think it is um, a fair system or there uh, needs to be done more? Um, I think like I mentioned something similar earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think like they should reduce the money that we're paying, especially like I said, like during COVID times, I think just so mm-hmm. many people were paying much mm-hmm. more than what we got. So I think, yeah, they should like reduce the tuition fees in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had one person say to me that they were paying £9,000 for um, for Zoom calls. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And um, I want to ask you, uh, Allah, uh, again, um, do, do you, what, like, despite the costs and the facilities at hand, like, what do you think are some of the benefits of studying at university? Um, well, it does give you, like, a better chance to, like, find a job Mm-hmm. Um, like in the future, like so many jobs, they'd want you to have a degree. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, so, like, just personally, like you get out of your comfort zone, and like the other things I mentioned before, like your determination, independence. Um, also, you you get to meet so many people. You also get to work on like your own dissertation, and so many like networking as well. Definitely. And um, Abdullah, I wanted to ask you, um, how has education and your experience at university helped you mature? I think it's quite similar to everything Allah just said about independence and confidence and all of that stuff. I think you also um, develop a greater self-discipline as well, um, because you obviously you have, to time, you have to manage your time, you have to um, work with your social life and all the like volunteering and all of that stuff. 
Um, and I think it's really, it really is a transition from be, being a teenager to an adult um, and also interacting and working with a diverse set of people. Um, and, and those people have diverse ideas, etc. So it expands your mind and it prepares you for when you're getting into professional work. Um, you have that kind of tolerance and you already have an idea of working with people from different backgrounds. Um, and then also skills such as critical thinking skills, communication, presentation skills, all of that stuff. Definitely. And and lastly, Hala, uh, I wanted to ask, um, what are your thoughts on about government tightening rules and phasing out degrees that are not as critical or seen as important in their view? I have heard that there used to be a degree in David Beckham that enabled you to be <laughs> a part of his stuff. But um, yeah, w- what are your thoughts on that? Um, I wasn't really sure about this question, so like, I need your help. Sure thing. Uh, so, like, what what do you think is? What are your thoughts about the government tightening the rules around, like, uh, and and phasing out degrees, saying that hey, this 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 or that degree is not uh, valuable anymore, so we're going to stop providing it. Um, I mean, I don't think it should be like that. I just think anyone, everyone should do like whatever degree they'd like to pursue. I don't think. Some degrees are less like valuable than others. Mm-hmm. Great, and thank you both for your time today. It's uh, been really insightful to hear about that, and you've definitely fueled more debate for us to discuss now. <laughs> so, thank you both for your time. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. And that was uh, two students, one graduated in, uh, of, of uh, psychology. And yeah, they really gave that experience. And they, they kind of mentioned quite a few of the things we've already discussed, right? right you right. know, Absolutely. kind of making us uh, quite valid in, in, in the thoughts that we were saying of uh, the advantages and the disadvantages. Because, you know, it, it is it is difficult. And I think that um, some, of the, some of the advantages and disadvantages, like... It's it's weighing it up. It's, I think it's quite a difficult decision at this point mm-hmm. in time. Absolutely, yes, absolutely. So um, as we were discussing before, you know, um, that what are the disadvantages of the um, some of the university um, disadvantages of the university, and one of the disadvantages of the university is um, lifetime earnings. So according to the uh, certain trust, those with the level five apprenticeship or higher are likely to earn more over their lifetime than graduates with a degree from a non-Russell group university. So apprentice apprentice, uh, apprentice, apprentice in this group are predicted to earn an average of 1.5 million over their career compared with the 1.4 million uh, forecast for non-Russell group graduates. So this is the one of the you know um, um, setback of the joining you know joining the um, university and definitely yeah. and um, you know th- there are un- alternative routes right mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. government has been pushing students to consider alternative paths after completing their secondary education um, one such way we, we mentioned it before uh, is is undertaking an apprenticeship and. Mm-hmm. An an apprenticeship for anybody who doesn't know um, is a type of work placement that combines practical learning alongside ongoing role related duties. Right. Uh, typically, an apprentice will split their time uh, eighty twenty between work and study. Um, 
unlike work experience, an apprenticeship is a legit, a legitimate job that requires a legal contract of employment, um, salaries, and annual leave. So it's, they're basically working like any other p- employee. Um, from my experience, uh, you know, I've had uh, apprentices at work where they've gone for once a week to um, to study, mm-hmm. and then they have assignments to finish and um, keep on top of. And what's what's what I've seen is is quite advantageous of that is um, where uh, they've literally learned something and they've right. come into the workplace and say, "Hey, I've just learned this. Can we try it?" Mm-hmm. And there's been times where I, I've kind of learned from it as well. I'm like, <laughs> "Oh, that's great!" Like because oh, okay. I didn't have formal education in my area of expertise. Mm-hmm. So it's it, I think it's it's a, it's a great alternative route. Um, but yeah, um, do you want to talk about some of the benefits of these impre- apprenticeships? Yeah, sure. Because so, uh, sure. So, um, 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 doing apprenticeship is you have you know experience. So, in most apprenticeships, you will be working as part of a team of experienced professional for the majority of your apprenticeship. You will have the opportunity to expand your skill set and benefit from hands-on experience. Um, then, support system. Um, is one of the um, benefit doing apprenticeship. So apprenticeships offer a much higher level of uh, support um, than regular jobs, and employers will be there to help um, help uh, help you to guide you, you know, you, through your career journey. So this is the one of the main. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think the support system is there because, mm-hmm. um, again, give my own example of, of apprentice uh, apprentices that mm-hmm. um, they've they all can always get help with their work as well right like um so but before we discuss more of the advantages of and disadvantages of apprenticeships i think we have our next guest on the line uh we have ali khan uh who is an adult education and work-based learning specialist Mm -hmm. he also owns a business which delivers apprenticeships and training schemes in early years health and social care leadership and project management uh, with that short introduction, uh, welcome to the show, Ali Khan. Um, thank you for being here today. Assalamualaikum, guys. How are you doing? Peace be with you. Peace be with you. Uh, we're great, and thank you for your time today. Um, we wanted to to kind of get your expertise in this area and and find out how important it is, is it for the youth to get hands on experience and skills early, because um, as Imran said a few mm-hmm. times, like you know that practical element is is very uh, important. Yeah, I think it's incredibly important. I think that the what's um, I think children generally these days, um, due to the uh, changes in the way changes in the world. They're growing up differently from how they used to, how they developed 20, 25 years ago. And they grow up with much less practical skills um, because they're obviously far more technologically advanced. So they're, while, while they're more capable of doing things on phones and tablets and computers, then perhaps someone of my generation still doesn't know how to do that yet now. <laughs> Sometimes, given their environment, they lack the practical skills right. that they wouldn't have when they get to the age of... 18 or 21 and I think from that perspective even before we start talking about apprenticeships but actually hands-on experience and gaining actual practical skills out there in the world mm-hmm. rather than um, doing everything kind of on a screen uh, or via technology I think is really important right so Ali, sorry 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 to cut you carry on 
No, 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 that's okay. I, okay. So you choose to uh, to do an apprenticeship rather than going to university. Why was that, and did you ever regret this choice? You know, um, I think I'm living proof of if someone doesn't um, necessarily uh, take to academic to academia mm-hmm. as they should. I think you know. I, I think that there's some people who are capable of um, taking to academia, and they choose not to because they're too impatient, or um, they, you know, they want to. You know, they're, they're too impatient for that, and they want to get out there in the world. They want to get out there sooner. But also, um, some people it just doesn't. For some children, it just doesn't suit their learning style. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, we have far more research and far more information available these days about. Um, learning disabilities, learning difficulties, learning needs, and we, we, we you know, we're far. Uh, these have always been there in the past. It's just I think we're we're a lot better at diagnosing them and supporting them now. And and it, you know, it, it's you know, that formal kind of academic route is not for everybody. A level is not for everybody. University is not for everybody. And I think that um, for me, I I dropped. You know, I didn't complete university for various reasons. Um, but the the great thing was is that when I went into the workplace, um, I was able to still continue um, learning, and I was able to still continue to achieve qualifications, which twenty years later mm-hmm. means that I'm still academically um, I've, I've I've managed to get to the point where I've got degree level qualifications, even mm-hmm. though I didn't go to university and right. complete a degree. I've got degree level qualifications, but I've also got twenty years of practical experience behind me. Where I've learned. Um, I've learned how to apply what I'm learning in the workplace and that can be just as valuable and rewarding a learning experience because when you're learning something reading it from a, a, a book mm-hmm. um, for me that never did it for me mm-hmm. you know okay. I was like oh, yeah, well, I will, um, but when you see when when someone is teaching you something mm-hmm. and you can go away mm-hmm. the next day and see it um, practically applied in your workplace or try in your workplace that that's essentially what an apprenticeship is Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And it's a, it's a different learning experience, and it's, it especially suits uh, those who are far more kinesthetic learners, you know. Um, mm-hmm. um, and, 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 you know, it's, 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 it's great that the government have recognised that, and over the last five, five to ten years, the, the number of apprenticeships that are now available um, has, has meant that you can pretty much still do anything that you want to do via an apprenticeship route. Mm-hmm. So, so you would otherwise have gone through an academic route. Yeah. Uh, Ali, do you feel apprenticeships are negatively stereotyped? If so, how can this be changed? Yeah, you know, um, the mentioned earlier in my introduction that my business, we do health and social care apprenticeships, we do early years apprenticeships, mm. and we do project management and leadership apprenticeships. It's a strange mix. Mm-hmm. And actually, apprenticeships very much used to have this uh, connotation that it was um, the trade, obstruction, uh, motor yeah. vehicle mechanic, engineering, um, but you know lower level engineering, um, and and for example health and social care, um, working in in a working in an elderly people's care home, working in a children's nursery, that these careers were not often as highly thought of. They're not as highly thought of, and therefore apprenticeships and NVQs get categorised. Vocational training got categorised with those sectors. What's happened in the last five years since the introduction of the, the apprenticeship reforms and the new apprenticeship standards, we've had nearly a thousand new apprenticeship standards 
introduced, you can now do an apprenticeship in banking, you can do an apprenticeship in accountancy, you can do an apprenticeship in uh, um, an MBA, you can do um, I, you know, cybersecurity, project management. You can pretty much do an apprenticeship in in seventy or eighty percent, right? Seventy or eighty percent of the careers that are out there. So all of a sudden, um, and the other thing that the government have done is is that they've introduced the apprenticeship levy, which means that large corporate companies, whereas before they only had graduate schemes, now they have to have apprenticeship schemes. Interesting. And and and, and now there there is that, that change has already happened, and there's very very few people that don't understand now that that negative stereotype is no longer exists. So, so you kind of alluded to it, but um, do you feel like more industries should be opening doors to apprenticeships? Um, because there are quite a few uh, unfilled vacancies, right? Yeah, I think I think that the I think that the that that job has been done. I think industries have opened their doors hmm. to apprenticeships. There's a lot more apprenticeships out there. Actually, now the issue is getting those vacant apprenticeship vacancies filled as well. That that that's you know that there are large gaps. The the apprenticeship schemes for the more more sought after trades, the more sought after industries of jobs, they're the ones that fill up quickly. Um, but there, there's there's thousands and thousands of unfilled apprenticeship vacancies too. So I think there will always be more that industry can do. There will always be more that employers can do. But I think for the time being, they've done enough to push the agenda forward and to create those vacancies. And there's new apprenticeship standards being developed all the time. So the government has this scheme called apprenticeship trailblazers any any group of employers in any uh, sector can get together and they can um, write a set of apprenticeship standards for a particular job role and that is ongoing there's continually new apprenticeship standards being introduced and, and under under review um, and you know I mean just just to give you a, a really obscure example I know that there's a, a few really large car parking companies national car parking companies who are putting together an apprenticeship in car park management now it sounds obscure, but they hear you have, you know, they recognise it as a job role, that there an apprenticeship can be written for it, and people can be developed to 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 to, to do that role. So there's things like that happening all the time, and 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 that will continue. That was really interesting. Thank you so much, uh, Ali Khan, for uh, your insight today. Um, I think that you've uh, definitely uh, shared some great knowledge on on the subject of apprenticeships that many may not have known. I certainly learned something. Uh, thank you for your time today. No problem at all. It's been wonderful to speaking to you guys. You guys are doing a great job. Thank you. Take Welcome. care. Thank you. Bye. 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 Peace, that was Ali Khan, who has um, uh, a work-based learning specialist who owns a business that delivers these apprenticeships that we've been talking about. And, you know, with everything... Um, at Voice of Islam, we always look to what is the Islamic perspective, right? Yeah. So, um, do you want to just tell the listeners about the Islamic sure. perspective? So, the Holy Quran is the word of uh, Almighty God, which was revealed to the Holy Prophet of Islam, the best and the greatest of all prophets. Um, it is the um, powerhouse of all knowledge for men um, and for all times. So, um, um, what how, so it says in the Holy Quran, um, and also the um, you know um, it says in the Holy Quran that whatever in the heavens and the earth glorifies Allah, and the promised Messiah والسلام, peace be upon him said that knowledge has three stages: knowledge through interference, interf- in- inference, knowledge through observation, knowledge through experience, and 
illustration of these in illustration of these three stages of knowledge for a man of common understanding is this you know um, so th- there are three kind of knowledge and uh, there are three kind of knowledge so um, you can uh, no- acquire knowledge from uh, inference experience and understanding so yeah these definitely are three, yeah. and so you know as, as Islam always teaches you to whether you need to go to China to get yeah. the knowledge you get the knowledge yeah. and so in today's world, many young people feel that they have no choice but to go to university. Um, right. We just want people to know that there are loads of paths available. Mm-hmm. And with that in mind, we wanted to um, thank our producers today as well and the technical team. You know, these shows wouldn't be possible uh, without them. Uh, we have uh, our producers, uh, Rabita Khan uh, and Hanya Mubarak, as well as Dr. Basma Ikram and Aisha. Um, I think they if there's one thing that you want to take away from today I think that um, education is important for sure Um, and you know as we mentioned in the show before I always try to connect Mm -hmm. the two you you have uh, the importance of education for for poverty as well Mm -hmm. so uh, thank you uh, for listening today and we'll have the news